What's up, guys? Welcome to the 12th episode of the Good Guy Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Andres Valencio. Some of the topics on today's episode include what the Seahawks should do now that Russell Wilson has given them a deadline for his new contract, what to make of the AAF folding in its inaugural season, and now that the Final Four is finally set, I'm going to tell you who will be standing alone as national champions this Monday night. We got all that and a whole lot more coming up. You're listening to The Good Guy Podcast. Welcome to episode 12 of The Good Guy Podcast. Hard to believe we're already at an even dozen. Once again, I'm your host, Andres Valencio, coming to you on Friday, April 5th, 2019. I hope that y'all had a good week, got some big, big plans ahead of you for the weekend. Hey, we made it. It's finally here, the Final Four in Minneapolis. East Lansing Zone, Michigan State Spartans will be participating. Very exciting times, I know, around here locally. I know nationally a lot of people are disappointed. Zion's not in it, no North Carolina, no Kentucky. Hey, whatever, we got a blue blood in it. It's Michigan State, a couple of first-timers. We got Virginia. I'm really looking forward to it. I know a lot of people around here are too. If you're not, just because some of the name brand teams aren't in it, I suggest you go in with an open mind, give it a shot, and you're going to see some really high-level, compelling basketball. The Sweet 16 and Elite 8 rounds, how exciting were those games? So many matchups that came down to the wire. I mean, you think about that. Virginia-Purdue finish, unbelievable. Tennessee-Purdue was exciting. Obviously, Michigan State-Duke. Kentucky-Auburn. I mean, there was just... I could go on and on and list all the matchups. It seems like so many great games. And honestly, that's one of the positives that came out of the first weekend. A lot of people were upset because there wasn't that big upset, that big Cinderella that leaked into the Sweet 16. And I know that kind of takes away from some of the magic of March Madness. But one of the positives of that is that when you have all the favorites winning in the opening opening weekend, it leaves the best teams to compete in the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 rounds later. And that's how you end up with so many great games. So for as much as it was kind of a bummer we didn't have that Cinderella story through the first weekend of the tournament, it ended up paying off big time for all the great games we got to see last weekend. Definitely one of the more exciting, entertaining tournaments I can remember. Really enjoyed what I saw last weekend. Again, especially with Michigan State pulling off that upset. As far as my picks were concerned, last week I made some revised picks for the Sweet 16 and Elite 8. I only managed to get one of the four final teams right. I picked Tennessee, North Carolina, and Gonzaga to get there. Unfortunately, all three of them fell. North Carolina actually fell flat on their face. Tennessee, I felt, might have got robbed against Purdue, and then Gonzaga just ran up to a, a really great defensive team in Texas Tech. But I did manage to get the one right, picking Michigan State over Duke. To me, the only one that I really cared about. Far and away, the most important one. Such an incredible game. Got to give a shout-out to Zion, R.J. Barrett, and that freshman class from Duke for an unbelievable season. But the experience of guys like Cassius Winston, Matt McQuaid, Coaching of Tom Izzo just was able to kind of barely edge those guys out in what was an instant classic. And, and really, it's the NCAA tournament's 
tournament committee's fault that we had to see that game in the Elite Eight. That should have been a Final Four or maybe even a national championship matchup. So we got to see in the Elite Eight. Great season by them. Not super great on the picks by me, but but I'll take getting MSU right. And like I said, a quick shout-out to Texas Tech and Auburn making their first ever trips to the Final Four. Big ups to them. And UVA, Virginia, getting there for the first time, I believe, since 1984. So maybe not the most name-brand Final Four we can remember, but certainly uh, some compelling matchups for worthy teams. And we will be making our Final Four predictions and championship predictions at the end of today's episode. No AAF recap this week in wake of the league folding just eight games into its inaugural season. Disappointed to hear that. Not going to say too much right now. We will touch on that later. The NBA and NHL playoffs. I feel like I've been saying this for weeks. The regular seasons of those sports are winding down. Playoffs finally start next week in both pro basketball and hockey. Always an exciting time. Personally, being an NBA fan, even though the first round is usually kind of predictable, it's always fun. It seems like every night you can turn on a couple of different stations and there's a playoff game going on. So definitely looking forward to getting that going. And Major League Baseball, the MLB is now in full swing. The regular season started uh, actually last week. Tigers had their opening day yesterday, and they're actually off to a fairly decent start, above 500 so far, which is better than I thought they'd be. So not going to complain about that. And even for golf fans, the Masters starts next Thursday. Now, I'll be honest, I only care about golf when Tiger Woods is in contention for a major. This is one of those majors. Hopefully, he shows up, plays well, and is in it, has a chance to win it on Sunday. Otherwise, I can promise that I probably won't be tuned in. But for those of you hardcore golf fans, definitely something to look forward to. But with the AAF folding, it officially means there'll be no more football until the fall. And while there is obviously a lot happening in other sports, as I just mentioned... There was an NFL headline that caught my attention this week. And it was one that, for the player that created it, seemed a bit out of character. Earlier this week, it was reported that Seattle Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson, who was under contract with the team for just one more season, would set, he was going to set a deadline to allow the team to negotiate an extension. If the team and Wilson aren't unable to agree to an extension by April 15th, which is in 10 days, Wilson would presumably play out the season with just one year left on his deal and potentially enter 2020 as an unrestricted free agent. Now, the assumption is that Seattle will find a way to re-sign Russell either before the deadline that he set or certainly before next season. Worst case scenario... They could franchise franchise tag him. Now, make no mistake, in his seven seasons under center for the Seahawks, Russell Wilson has been outstanding. I mean, we're talking about a guy who has been to six Pro Bowls in seven seasons, been in the playoffs six times, been to two Super Bowls, won one, and in different seasons he's led the NFL in passer rating, and passing touchdowns. So many would argue, and I should say myself included, that he is 
in today's NFL market more than worthy of a record-setting contract. In fact, the over-under set by Vegas for what his new deal could be for, that over-under has been set at $175 million. But the assumption is that Seattle will pay whatever is necessary to re-sign and retain their franchise quarterback. But we've seen teams who are left with no choice but to pay big money to their franchise quarterback. We've seen those teams struggle to win recently. In fact, of the 10 highest paid quarterbacks in the NFL going into this season, only two of them made the playoffs last year. Two out of 10. Drew Brees and Andrew Luck. Now, this isn't because the 10 highest-paid quarterbacks are all just a bunch of overpaid scrubs. Some of them are probably making more than they should be, but highest-paid is Aaron Rodgers. I don't think anyone thinks he's overpaid. No, I think this has more to do with what is the new model of creating a contender in the NFL. Acquiring a young, talented quarterback usually via the draft, and surrounding that quarterback with elite talent while he's still on his cheap rookie deal. We've seen multiple teams exercise this strategy in building contenders. The Cowboys, the Eagles, the Bears, the Rams, the Texans, and obviously, with this year's league MVP, Kansas City. In fact, the argument could be made that Seattle was actually the first to successfully use this model back when they did it with Russell Wilson during back-to-back Super Bowl appearances in 2013 and 2014. You think about how dominant that Seahawks team was with the Legion of Boom, Richard Sherman, Camp Chancellor, Earl Thomas... A dominating run game behind Marshawn Lynch. Beast mode. And an offensive line that was the highest paid in the NFL. That was early on in Russell's career. They had those things. During Russell Wilson's four years where his cap hit, his salary cap hit, has been under $8 million during those four years. The Seahawks played in 10 playoff games. They went 7-3. and three. In the last three years, after he got his first extension, those three years his salary cap hit has been more than $14 million each year. In those three years, the Seahawks have played in three playoff games. They're 1-2. Now, don't get me wrong, Russell played outstanding last season. He threw for a career-high 35 touchdowns. But his attempts were 20th in the league. His completions were 20th in the league. And his passing yards were 18th. His numbers in those three categories were his lowest since his second season in the league. 
when he essentially game-managed the Seahawks to the Super Bowl. See, back then, Seattle rode the league's, or I'm sorry, this season, Seattle rode the league's number one rushing attack to the playoffs, along with many timely Russell, Russell Wilson passes. But they, he wasn't throwing them there. That was a run-first team. So much so that his passing yards per game, not total, but per game, ranked 28th in the NFL. It's only 32 starters. Now, none of this is to say that Wilson isn't a franchise quarterback or even a top 10 quarterback in the league. I strongly believe that he's both. I think the evidence all points to that. But this latest deadline and what likely will follow does raise a question that I believe Seattle should be asking itself before signing Wilson to a mega deal. Should the Seahawks consider trading Russell Wilson? Now, I know this seems blasphemous at first. But look at the numbers I just gave you. They're still treating him like he's a young quarterback who they need to protect. They seem hell-bent on building an offense behind a power-running game. As I said earlier, the evidence leans towards today's highly-paid quarterbacks struggling to win. When you pay a quarterback that high of a percentage of your salary cap, you're asking him to carry a lot of the load. Now, Clearly, quarterback is a position where you can play for a long time, and Seattle could be set with Wilson if they sign him to an extension. Quarterbacks last longer in today's NFL. But let's keep in mind, this is not like Tom Brady or Drew Brees. Russell Wilson's game is very reliant on his athleticism and his mobility. He can play from the pocket, but he's never had to do it exclusively. But the biggest reason they should at least consider it is due to the salary cap space and the assets that could be acquired for his services. It could be unprecedented. Think about this. When the Raiders traded Khalil Mack, who is not a franchise quarterback, he's a pass rusher and one of the best in the NFL. But he was traded for two first-round picks and a third. And for every... Impact play that he made for as great and important as a pass rusher is to a football team. They don't have near the impact that a quarterback does. So would it be far-fetched to think that a team desperate enough might trade three or even four first-round picks? Along with maybe a couple of seconds or thirds? For an established franchise quarterback just turning 30? I don't think it's out of the question that a desperate team like the Giants or the Washington franchise or one of these teams that is in desperate need, Miami, that has been long searching for a franchise quarterback, might put all their chips on the table if they thought they could get Russell Wilson. Give up all of their assets. 
And then see if you're Seattle. You draft a young quarterback maybe next year. Tua Tungavailoa, Jake Fromm, Justin Herbert. And use that bevy of cap space and all these draft picks and assets to build a far better supporting cast around that young quarterback than you'd be able to build around a highly paid Russell Wilson. A stronger defense, a stronger offensive line, a dominant run game, better weapons. Again, none of this is to say I don't think Russell Wilson's a great player. I know he is. In fact, I would argue he's probably going to end up in the Hall of Fame. And I'm not even saying Seattle should actively shop him and just give him away. But if someone inquires about him, I don't think you hang up the phone. I don't think it hurts to listen. Because you never know what a desperate team will do. We've seen teams trade away first-round picks for two and three years to get unproven commodities out of college. Washington sold the farm to get RG3. LA sold the farm to get Jared Goff. Now, obviously, those are two different ends of the spectrum of how that can go. Wilson is an established future Hall of Famer about to turn 30. Or maybe he he might already be 30. But if you're Seattle and you want to be a power running team that plays good defense and has a quarterback who ranks around 25th in attempts per season, then be that team with a cheaper quarterback and build a better squad to do those other things around him. A few years ago, Seattle built a Super Bowl champion by putting together a dominant defense and strong running game around a talented, underpaid young quarterback. And sometimes, history, in life, and in sports, has a funny way of repeating itself. So, I'm not saying they should shop him. But if the right opportunity comes along, if enough is offered, we'll see if those in charge of the Seahawks have the guts to try to recreate that winning formula all over again. Speaking of superstars that are joining new teams, Bryce Harper made his regular season debut with the Philadelphia Phillies this past week. Now you'll remember the former Nationals outfielder signed a 13-year, $330 million contract in the offseason with Philadelphia. Now, on a previous episode, I stated that I didn't love the deal long-term for Bryce or for Philadelphia. I think 13 years with no a no-trade clause, 13 years with no opt-out, I think that's too long. I wouldn't sign any player to that. And if I was a player, I don't think I'd sign on with any franchise for that long. Ownership can change. Obviously, management can go in and out. You never know. I stated that I liked Padres' new third baseman Manny Machado's deal better, even though it's only a couple years shorter, because an opt-out exists, because a no-trade clause doesn't. 
so that if it begins to be a lopsided negative deal for one side, they can get out of it. I don't like these deals that trap teams, and I certainly don't like these deals that trap players. That being said, just because I don't like the 13-year deal, there's no doubt that the first four to five years of this deal are going to pay big dividends for Philadelphia. Guys, Bryce Harper, he's many things. Polarizing. Talented. A bit inconsistent. Flashy. But above all else, he's a superstar. The face of baseball. Yes, him. Not Mike Trout. And maybe most importantly moving forward, he's someone and something that baseball needs. He's a villain. A poll was released before the start of the season, a poll that MLB players vote on. And one of the things that came from that poll was that Bryce Harper was listed by his peers as the most overrated player in baseball. He got 62% of the vote. The next closest player got four. Now, call him overrated. He responded with a great opening week to start the season. Through five games, he's hitting 500 with three home runs, five RBIs, and an on-base percentage of 652. All that for a Phillies team that has won four of its first five. Now, obviously, it's a small sample size. He's not going to hit 500 for the season. And the Phillies aren't going to win 80% of their games with him in the lineup. But it is a good start. And undoubtedly, the most memorable moment of a very young baseball season and Goodness, we know they can be long. But the most memorable moment of the season so far came when Harper made his return to Washington. He was booed. There was a lot of talk about would the fans boo him. They booed him. He struck out twice. But then he blasted a monstrous home run. I'm not sure if the ball's landed yet. It may still be rolling around somewhere. He hit that in a game that the Phillies won. And then, just for for good measure, he hit us with an outstanding bat flip. Now, in the days leading up to his return to Washington, he spoke very graciously of D.C., of the fans, of the organization. You know, spoke very fondly about his time there. But his response to the booze, all the haters, the overrated poll, the guys like me who questioned his contract, his response to them once he got between the white lines was a big middle finger in the form of a bat flip. And I absolutely loved it. Guys, 
This is what baseball needs more of. More villains. More personality. More stars. And yes, more bat flips. People talk about the right and wrong way to play the game. You're not supposed to flip your bat. You're not supposed to get excited when you do one of the coolest things in sports, which is to hit a home run. Look, not everyone in baseball is going to carry themselves like Mike Trout. He's a great player. He seems like a really good guy, and he's very respectful and humble, and that's fine. Doesn't mean everyone else has to be. Not everyone in the NBA carries themselves like Tim Duncan carried himself. We've got guys like Joel Embiid who troll on social media, who do the finger wag, who agitate guys, who talk trash and brag themselves up. And the NBA is better for it. When Barry Sanders was in his Hall of Fame career for the Detroit Lions, Every time he scored a touchdown, he'd hand the ball to the ref. It was classy. It was great sportsmanship. He acted like he'd been there before, and that was great. And you know what? Terrell Owens, during his Hall of Fame career, he'd break out the Sharpie and sign the ball when he scored. Or he'd steal the pom-poms from the cheerleader and start dancing. Or he would dump a bucket of popcorn into his face mask. And the NFL is better for having had them both. But not Major League Baseball. Oh no. They have long fought to suppress characters and personalities and certainly villains. Guys like Yasiel Puig, Manny Ramirez, Jose Batista. These are guys who were characters and had personalities and were portrayed as villains. Viewed as guys who played the game the wrong way because they had a flair and a swag. People talk all the time, especially old timers and baseball guys. They talk about the unwritten rules of baseball. No staring after you hit a home run. No jogging slowly around the bases. No bat bat flipping. No showboating. And if you commit one of these crimes, the punishment that's deemed appropriate is a 100 mile an hour fastball to the head. So just so we're clear, according to the unwritten rules of baseball, Bat flips after a home run, a no-no. 100-mile-an-hour fastballs to somebody's head, yeah, all good if they do something you don't like. Ridiculous. They want you to play the game that the, way, the way that they want. Boring, stoic, robotic. Don't do it. You get beamed. So to all the unwritten baseball guy, unwritten rule baseball guys, all the old timers, all the guys trying to suppress interesting players, stop. Sports are played by different people from different backgrounds, 
who play the game and express themselves differently. The NBA gets it. The NFL gets it. You see in hockey, in the NHL, they get it. Now, granted, there's fighting, and and that's kind of hard to to justify, but that's, you know, they're trying to at least get that out. Baseball is the only sport that doesn't embrace this. And here's the crazy thing. It's a global game. It's not like the NFL, which is domestic. Players come from all over the world and play in the major leagues, and you expect them all to act the way you want them to act? Let alone guys who grow up in the United States in different parts of the country or from different backgrounds or all kinds of things acting differently. You expect guys to come from entirely different countries and cultures and conform because there's only one right way to play? Stop suppressing your interesting characters. They make a sport that a lot of people consider long and boring. They make it more interesting. They bring in a new, younger audience. Young sports fans nowadays, not as many of them have favorite teams. They have favorite players. You don't know how many times I'll hear a kid say, I'm not a Lakers fan. I'm not a Cavs fan. I'm a LeBron fan. They don't root for the name on the front of the jersey. They root for the name on the back. I've been guilty of this. I spent two years rooting for the Cleveland Browns because they drafted my favorite college player, Johnny Manziel. After he left, I took a couple years off rooting for the Browns. Didn't care about them. They went out and drafted my favorite quarterback, In last year's draft, Baker Mayfield, suddenly, I'm rooting for the Browns again. Baker and Johnny are interesting, polarizing, totally different in terms of production, but you see the point. They were must-watch. If baseball pushes these kind of players away, players that will draw in new fans and make them want to follow, they're depriving themselves of new fans, young fans. So now, baseball has a dilemma. Because of the face of its league is its most interesting personality and probably, at this point, its biggest villain. Yes, Bryce Harper, the face of Major League Baseball, is a bat flipper, a trash talker, A polarizing personality. The MLB needs to understand it is in their best interest not only to protect Harper and players like him, the Puigs, the Batistas, the Manny Ramirez's. Don't just protect them from these unwritten rule garbage nonsense happenings. Promote them. Promote the flair and the personality and the swag. It's what the game needs. Look, I know this. One of the great things about sports, it's a melting pot. Guys come from all different backgrounds, races, religions, countries, cities, states. 
And they come together. And it's a place where differences and different perspectives can, can all work together. And we can appreciate everybody for what they are. There's not supposed to be one way to carry yourself on a sports team. Baseball doesn't get to live above that exception. Unwritten rules, be damned. So I started doing this podcast for a pretty simple reason. Um, I love sports. Nobody is paying me to do this week in and week out. If you can believe that, I know. I mean, I'm so damn talented. How could somebody not be? How could people not be lining up to pay me for this? But actually, there are really no promising opportunities on the horizon because of this. It's something I do in my own time for fun because I'm passionate about it. I love sports. I always have. And the sport that I love the most and have since before I could spell my name or tie my shoes or count to 100 is football. On one hand, I'm not sure I can explain why. And on the other hand, I could probably give you a thousand reasons. I just know that I've always been fascinated by the game. Ever since I was, I mean, a toddler. Growing up, I would collect football cards, read all the NFL magazines I could get my hands on, and memorize as many stats as I possibly could. I wanted to be able to tell people who was the sixth leading passer in 2005. You know, just weird stuff like that. I would force my mom to play catch with me in the yard, even though she didn't really like it and wasn't very good. And then I would go and betray her trust by getting up in the middle of the night secretly and watching the end of Monday Night Football with my TV on mute. And look, I'm a, I'm a warm weather guy. I love the spring and the summer. Those are my favorite seasons. I can't stand the cold even growing up in Michigan. But for as much as I love the spring and the summer, there was always a part of me that was ready for fall. Because I knew that's when another season of my favorite sport would finally begin again. Safe to say, I consider myself a football junkie. I say all that to say, I have to admit something. I was bummed when it was announced this week that the Alliance of American Football, the AAF, had folded after just eight weeks into its inaugural season. Now, those of you who have listened to the podcast on a weekly basis know 
how I kind of enjoyed giving the Upstart League a minute or two of coverage during each episode, usually at the beginning. And while there may have been a hint of sarcasm during those segments, kind of poking fun at the uniforms or the names or some of the even some of the players on the teams, I will say I genuinely enjoyed watching and following the league during its you know, very short run. The football wasn't top level, wasn't the NFL, wasn't even really high level college, but it was decent. And it was getting better each week. That's undeniable. I like some of the rule changes they incorporated. The no extra point thing was kind of fun, having to go for two after every touchdown. The sky judge who could overrule bad calls from a booth. No onside kicks. Got to go for like fourth and 15 from your own 28. I thought that stuff was kind of cool. I enjoyed the mic'd up access to the head coach, the quarterback, the replay booth, letting you know the exact process of how they went about overturning or upholding a call. And I really thought the league had a chance to last because it seemed to be run by qualified individuals who knew what they were doing. Charlie Ebersol, son of former NBC sports president Dick Ebersol, Bill Polian, Hall of Fame GM from the NFL, a bunch of former players, guys like Heinz Ward, Jared Allen, Justin Tuck were involved. And the fact that they had so many NFL connections, I really thought, gave it a genuine shot to grow and get better. Now, I never thought the league would be a major force, never be a, uh, become a, a primary league that people really tuned into. But I thought it had a place. I thought it could find a spot and work. Finally... For a while, I thought spring football is here to stay. Three fewer months a year, I'd have to go without football. My childhood dream. But it didn't happen that way. Obviously, as it turned out, the league was unorganized. Underfunded. They essentially sold the entire league after one week. And when it was all said and done, they couldn't even make it through one damn season. I do think there's a lesson to be learned from the AAF, in spite of its failures. And it's this. While I do believe there is a place for spring football, while I do believe hypothetically Spring football could work. I don't think we will ever see a successful spring football league exist. Now I know Vince McMahon, head of WWE, he's going to restart the XFL next season. I know. I'm going to watch. 
And I'll be rooting for it to succeed. I hope it does. But do I think it will? No. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually think the NFL would be well served by having a secondary league, a minor league. But here's the thing about minor leagues. The success of them can't be determined by TV ratings or ticket sales or merchandise. Minor leagues need to be funded and supported by a parent league. Minor league baseball works, but it's never on TV. You don't turn on ESPN2 or the MLB Network and see the Lugnuts playing the Dayton Dragons. And you never will. The NBA G League works. It's hardly ever on TV. I think they show like one game and you can get the ESPN Plus package and and watch that if it piques your interest. But I worked for a G League team. It's low budget. It's understaffed. It's underattended. The quality of basketball is mediocre. Quality of management is even worse. But that's not what the success of those teams are dependent on. They're funded and partner with the NBA. I hate to say it. I just think there are a few people, though I'd be one of them, who are willing to spend their time, let alone their hard-earned money, on a league that undoubtedly can only put out second-rate football. So until the NFL decides it wants to create its own developmental spring league with its own resources and its own funding, there will never be a successful spring league. And that's a shame. Not just because I'm selfish and want to see more spring football. Although, I was hoping it'd find a niche and survive the way something like Major League Lacrosse or Pro Bowling has. Not that they're major sports, not that they're big ratings drawers, but they have their niche of fans and they tune in and watch. And I was hoping the same would happen for one of these leagues. But I think also that young players and young coaches could only be helped and served by getting additional reps, additional practices, live game experiences. And I like the idea of guys looking for a second chance. The Zach Mettenbergers, the Trent Richardsons, the Johnny Manziels. I like the idea of guys like that having a place so they can go and prove themselves and try to get that second opportunity. I was hoping that the AAF had finally given us that. A place for spring football, a place where coaches and young players can develop a place for guys who have screwed up and were looking to redeem themselves could go. And you've seen a handful of AAF guys signed to NFL teams this week. Guys that may not have gotten NFL contracts or NFL shots without this league. 
Guys who probably became better players during the eight weeks that they were in the AAF. But it couldn't make it work. And while I hope the XFL will last, I certainly have my doubts. So rest in peace to the Alliance of American Football, which leaves us with Trent Richardson as its all-time touchdown leader, Steve Spurrier as its winningest coach, and its most memorable moment being a mic'd-up Johnny Manziel telling a defender, quote, we can go, I'll turn up on your bitch ass, unquote. As someone who truly loves football, Even in the spring, it's hard to say goodbye to the Iron, the Legends, the Apollos, the Express, the Hot Shots, the Commanders, the Fleet, and the Stallions. They were here for a good time, but not a long time. So, looks like Football junkies like myself have to go back to our plain, boring, football-free springs. That is, until next year, looking at you, Vince McMahon, looking at you, XFL. Come on, boys. Don't let me down. There was a really tragic loss in the world of music this past week. Rapper Nipsey Hussle was gunned down, senselessly murdered in a situation that I I really can't explain or or really make sense of. The loss of the hip-hop star has left a lot of people feeling just devastated. And obviously, it goes without saying, we're sending our thoughts, our condolences to Nipsey's family. It's... It's sickening that someone with such a positive message and a positive outlook would be taken away from the world. Nipsey leaves behind two children. And the whole situation is just tragic and and it's really sad. And one of the most powerful moments in the aftermath of Nipsey's death came when his friend Oklahoma City point guard Russell Westbrook delivered a historic 20 point 20 rebound 21 assist performance in a win over the Los Angeles Lakers after Russ collected his 20th rebound to cement what was undoubtedly a historic night, he proudly stated that his performance was in tribute 
to his fallen friend. Now, I'll say Russ takes a lot of crap from the media. You can say he drove Kevin Durant away. You can say he's reckless. You can say he takes bad shots. That was a really incredible moment, an incredible performance, and some really raw human emotion from Russ. And anybody who has anything negative to say about him or about that performance, they need to go somewhere because he was he was incredible. And that moment when he grabbed that rebound and looked into the crowd and tapped his chest and said, that was for Nipsey, that was one of the more powerful moments in sports that I can remember. Shout out and kudos to Russ. But what can't be understated was how impressive his performance was strictly from a basketball perspective. 20, 20, and 20 is something that had only been done once in the history of the NBA. Incredibly, incredibly impressive. And so I thought it would be cool to kind of put it in perspective, compare it a little bit, and look back on what I consider the 10 most impressive single-game performances in professional sports over the past 15 years. Now we're going to do again. Pro sports only. Four major American leagues. NFL, NBA, MLB, NHL. These are my opinion. Probably some I left out. There's so many great performances over the last 15 years. Hard to narrow it down to just 10. These are my preferred 10. These are kind of my preference. And so with that being said, let's get things going with number 10. D'Angelo Hall and the Washington franchise playing against the Chicago Bears October 24th, 2010 when my man D'Angelo picked off a NFL record four passes, four interceptions in one game in a victory over the Bears. A lot of guys will consider four interceptions in a season a damn good season. This guy intercepted four in one day, victimizing one of my favorite quarterbacks of all time, Smokin' Jay Cutler. I may have just thrown this on there because Jay was the one who threw the four picks. If Tony Romo had thrown those four picks, he might not have made the list, but D'Angelo, four picks in one game, real hard to do, comes in at number 10. Number nine, Johan Franzen. Versus the Ottawa Senators in February 2nd, 2011. Playing for the Detroit Red Wings. Johan scored five goals in one game. One of only three players in the last 20 years to accomplish that feat. Now you may be asking, what makes his five goal performance more impressive than the other two guys? Well, to be totally honest, I don't know a lot about hockey. And the guy played for the Red Wings, so he's going to get the nod in my book. Five goals is damn hard to do. I mean, I don't know if I could score five against an empty net. The skating alone would be hard enough. Five goals, one game. It's our only hockey one on here. As Chance the Rapper famously said, as they say in hockey, let's do that hockey. Moving on to number eight, 
Adrian Peterson against the San Diego Chargers on November 4th, 2007. Adrian, as a rookie for the Minnesota Vikings, carried the ball 30 times for an NFL record that still stands 296 yards and three touchdowns in a blowout win over San Diego. This was kind of AD's coming out party, setting the NFL record as a rookie. And, and it's crazy to think that 12 years later, the guy's coming off another 1,000-yard season playing for Washington. Just a beast. Had plenty of big days. This was the biggest one he's ever had. Adrian coming in at number eight. Number seven, Max Scherzer pitching against the Mets on October 3rd, 2015. How's this for your you know weekly start, your every five-day start? Nine innings pitched, no hits, no walks, 17 strikeouts, getting the W. The only reason it wasn't a perfect game was because one of his infielders had a throwing error and allowed a guy to reach base. So he had to settle for the no-hitter. But 17 strikeouts, no hits or walks, unbelievable. If he had gotten the perfect game, maybe higher, comes in at number seven. Number six, we talked about it earlier, Russell Westbrook versus the Lakers, April 2nd, 2019. 20 points, 21 assists, 20 rebounds. I know it doesn't sound like a lot in terms of 20 points ain't that many, but you have to understand how rare what he did was. There have been four quadruple doubles in NBA history. That's points, rebounds, assists, and either blocks or steals. I believe the one that happened was blocks. Or most of them that happened have been blocks. Four times that's happened. Only one other time has a guy gone 20, 20, and 20 in the history of the NBA. A lot of great players. I mean, you can't overstate that. And then you add in the context of everything that happened with Nipsey Hussle. Just an incredible performance. Russ comes in at number six. Number five, Anthony Rendon versus the Mets on April 30th, 2017. This is a pretty good day at the office. How about going six for six with three home runs, 10 RBIs, and five runs scored in a victory? Only one other player in the history of baseball has been able to get six hits, three home runs, and 10 RBIs in a single game. And that happened over 65 years before this one occurred. Unbelievable performance. Not sure what else you can do other than hit a home run at every bat. Six for six, three home runs, 10 RBIs. Unbelievable. Rendon comes in at number five. Number four, Peyton Manning versus the Ravens. September 5th, 2013. This was the opening game after the Ravens had won their Super Bowl. Normally, defending champ opens the year at home on Thursday night. But because of a scheduling conflict with the Orioles that the MLB refused to move, the Ravens had to go on the road to to open their Super Bowl defense and ran into a buzzsaw of a Broncos offense led by Manning, who finished the night 27-42, of For 462 yards and 7 touchdowns with no interceptions. 7 TDs, no picks. That's like a great 3-week stretch for a lot of guys. Manning absolutely lit them up. This was the year that he set the record all-time for touchdown passes in a season. 
wasn't hard to see he'd be heading in that direction after opening night. Peyton Manning coming in at number four. Number three, James Harden against the Knicks on December 31st, 2016. Now, on this night, he got a triple-double, but how's this for a triple-double? This ain't one of those Jason Kidd 11-11-11s. 53 points, 17 assists, 16 rebounds in a win. That's unbelievable. He actually had another game I could have chosen from. He had like a 60-point, 11-assist, 10-rebound game, but I really thought adding in the 7 extra assists, the 6 extra rebounds, that really was more impressive to me than, than scoring seven more points. You can get seven more points at the free throw line. 53, 17, and 16 is a hell of a night. It's not 20, 20, 20, but I would argue 50, 15, and 15 is pretty damn impressive in his own right. James Harden at number three. Number two, this one hurts me to admit, but I've got to give credit where it's due. Calvin Johnson versus the Dallas Cowboys, October 27th, 2013. This was a game that the Cowboys seemingly had won. The Lions had kind of choked it away. Dallas really didn't play that well, but Tony Romo threw a couple of uh, touchdowns to Des Bryant, and they had a lead late. Detroit ended up winning, and it was in large part thanks to Calvin Johnson, who had himself a day. 14 catches, 329 yards, one touchdown, and a comeback victory for Detroit. I remember sitting there ready to pull my hair out. All my Lions friends were texting me going crazy. I was livid. But I look back now and just have to say, damn, Megatron was unstoppable that day. He was unstoppable most days, but certainly that day. If he had scored a couple more times, maybe may have been number one. Comes in at number two. And for number one, actually, who am I kidding? There was no way Megatron could have been number one. Kobe Bryant against the Raptors on January 22nd, 2006. Six rebounds, two assists, not that special. 81 points. Unbelievable. Second most in NBA history. I mean, I remember watching SportsCenter as a kid the day after he did this and just being absolutely blown away that a guy could score 81 points in a basketball game. That's unbelievable. I couldn't play 81 points, score 81 points, playing 2K with a player. Incredible. Something that I'm not sure that we'll see again for a real long time. You you always hear guys are capable. I think James Harden could get 80 in a game. I think, you know, Steph Curry could get 80. I think KD could get 80. Yeah, but Kobe actually got 81. Outstanding, something that I'm not sure we'll ever see again. All these performances, unbelievable. Any of them stick out to you as unworthy. Any of them you think I missed, feel free to let me know. But these are my ten best perform. Yeah, my ten best performances of the last 15 years, capped off by Kobe's 81 point game against the Raptors. R.I.P. to Nipsey Hussle and prayers for his family. As we get close to wrapping up today's episode, it is finally time to discuss the biggest sporting event of the weekend by far, especially now that the AAF games have been canceled. The Final Four, and obviously following Monday night, National Championship game in men's college basketball. Now last week, I made some what I would call revised 
Sweet 16 and Elite 8 picks. And uh, started out looking like it was going to go pretty well. Didn't end up finishing quite as strongly as I'd hoped. Um, Of the eight teams that made it to the Elite 8, I correctly picked six of them. So that wasn't too bad of a start. But uh, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I did get just one of the actual Final Four teams correct. I may have overestimated the uh, completeness and talent of North Carolina and certainly underestimated the talent and the shooting of the Auburn Tigers. But I will say there was tons of close games. Tennessee, Purdue comes to mind. Uh, Kentucky, Auburn, certainly. So I probably could have done better, but you know I also could have done worse. Duke only beat or Duke only lost to Michigan State by a point, so I got to take the good with the bad. But there are only three games left, and I've got to say, I am damn confident in my ability to finish strong and go three for three. Now I know. Andres, the first two weekends you said you were going to be perfect. Yeah, well... That was a a bold proclamation and and statistically speaking, highly unlikely from the beginning. Okay, the first round of the tournament, there are 32 games. It was probably not realistic I could pick them all right. But this round? This round, there's only three games. Not 16. Not eight. Three. Three. So can I go three for three? Oh, it's not just doable. It's not just likely. It's a given. We're going to finish March Madness in April, which is my birthday month, the right way. Finish strong, perfect picks for this weekend. So, I've given you these warnings. You got kind of lucky the first weekend. And you got damn lucky last weekend. If you do not want to know who who will finish the season as national champions in men's college basketball, I would strongly encourage you to turn off the podcast now. In fact, you probably should. Especially if you're going to have like a party for the game on Saturday night or Monday and you don't want to be the guy at the party who ruins the outcome for everybody because you already know because you listen to the good guy. You don't have to be that friend. You don't have to be that guy or that girl. Just turn it off now. You don't have to know. I'll give you a second. It's okay. I get wanting to have the suspense, wanting to have the mystery of it. Totally understandable. My feelings won't be hurt. I'll go ahead and give you a couple seconds for those of you who don't want the surprise ruined to turn off the the podcast. Go ahead. Go ahead. Appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next week. All right. For those of you who stuck around, those of you who want to be the party poopers, those of you who maybe are, are gambling addicts or just can't stand not to... Not to know, those of you listening are probably the person who Wikipedia is the end of the movie before they actually see it. But hey, you come with questions, 
And I will provide you answers. As far as this weekend's games, first matchup, Virginia, Auburn. Two outstanding teams who've taken really challenging roads to get here. You think about Virginia, known for their slow pace. They play, frankly, really boring basketball, but they play really great defense. They're disciplined. And look, you don't get to be a number one seed and win 30-plus games by accident. This is a great program that has established itself. They're not a one-hit wonder, like you could maybe argue Auburn or Texas Tech. They've been in the running for a few years now, and this year they finally broke through. The win over Purdue and Carson Edwards, who, by the way, was unbelievable last week. But for Virginia to hit that shot and then stay composed and go win in overtime, that showed me a lot. Some really great players on the team, some potential NBA guys. You think about Kyle Guy. Ty Jerome's a really good player. And then on the Auburn side, the way this team is shot in the tournament, I mean, the way they shoot threes, they can beat anybody on any given night. Bruce Pearl has these kids believing, lost one of their key players to injury, didn't stop them. I mean, for this team to go, you think about this, they beat in consecutive games in the tournament, Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky. Outside of Duke, those are the three blue bloods in basketball. They had to play all three of them consecutively, and they took them all down. That alone may be the most impressive three-game stretch in tournament history. I'm not kidding. I mean, that's, that's unbelievable, and they certainly deserve to be commended for that. This little guard they got, Jared Harper, he is a blur. And if Auburn's shooting like they shot against North Carolina, Virginia ain't beating them. That being said, I think Virginia is going to play lockdown D. I think they'll limit the turnovers, which will stop the Tigers from getting out in those fast breaks and getting cheap points. And so while I admire Bruce Pearl's team's run, and to, you know, to Bruce Pearl's credit, I will say, he's kind of viewed as a little bit of a, a kind of a, a shady guy in terms of the way he's viewed by the NCAA. You can tell he really cares about his players and about his program. Certainly I'll be rooting for them, rooting for Charles Barkley's squad. But I just got to tell it like it is. I'm picking the Cavaliers to move on to the national championship game after defeating Auburn. Second game, Michigan State, Texas Tech. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are expecting me to pick the Spartans, being that I'm from East Lansing, grew up a Spartan fan, want to call me a homer. I don't think this is going to be the, an easy game for the Spartans at all. I watched what Texas Tech did to Michigan, had them shooting like a 7th grade B team, but for them to go down and to go out and take down Gonzaga, I mean, that was one of the more impressive wins of the whole tournament. This kid on their team, Jarrett Culver, is probably going to be a top five pick in this year's NBA draft. They play smothering defense, held the number one offense in the country in Gonzaga to 69 points. 
I mean, this team is this team is no joke. They, people are joking about oh, Texas Tech's in the Final Four. They belong here. They're going to be tough for anybody who's left in the field to beat. They're probably the best defensive team left in the field. Michigan State's in. Obviously, I think a huge coaching mismatch with Tom Izzo. He's been here, done that. This is not his first rodeo. He's eight Final Fours. Can't even begin to give him enough credit for the job he's done, even though he's an abusive monster who yells and beats and berates his players and bullies them. Somehow, in spite of all that, he convinces them to go out and play hard for him. And I've watched pretty much all eight of his Final Four runs. This is right up there with any of them as, as far as how impressive it is. You look at Cassius Winston, not the most talented player certainly left in the field, but maybe the most valuable the best decision maker, great passer, kind of controls the whole game like he has the ball on a string at all times. Going to be big for the Spartan role players to step up against a tough defensive team. Guys like Matt McQuaid, Kenny Goins, who hit the big shot last week, Xavier Tillman inside, those guys have to be on their game. Really would be beneficial to have good outside shooting from Winston, McQuaid, and Goins especially. Also look out for uh, Izzo victim Aaron Henry, to have to have an impact on this game for the Spartans to win. I think it'll be low scoring. Michigan State plays tough defense too. They're not a pushover. I think it's close. But in a game where it's close, I want Izzo's coaching, and I want a guy like Cassius Winston, who I know is going to make the right play, give me the Spartans to take down the Red Raiders, call me a homer, and move on to the third national title game under Tom Izzo. And that's where they'll meet Virginia. These two teams have played fairly recently. Uh, I believe they met in 2014 and in 2015, back-to-back years. Spartans took down the higher-seeded Cavaliers both times. Virginia would go into this game as the higher seed as well. And i got to be honest, I don't think the result is going to be any different. I know Virginia plays great defense. I have no doubt that they will keep it close. The game will be slow. Though they'll want to play the game at their pace. But their lack of offense at times can hurt them. And when you have a guy like Cassius Winston who limits mistakes, who limits poor possessions, who always seems to make the right play, for as good as Virginia's defense is, I don't think they'll be able to keep Michigan State scoring down long enough to withstand their own scoring droughts that they seem to go on every other game at least. I think Tom Izzo still has a bit of an edge over Tony Bennett, who has done an outstanding job of Virginia's program. Nothing against the Cavaliers. But after watching Michigan State beat that Duke team, a Duke team that has three top ten picks on its roster, and if Tyus Jones came out, he'd probably be a late first-round pick. After watching them beat that team, I just believe this squad has to feel like it's their year. They can beat anybody. They have to be as confident as anyone in the country Virginia has to feel lucky to be where they are after that miracle shot at the end of regulation. I think Michigan State feels like they belong and they've taken the hard road to get here. Tom Izzo gets his second national championship as the Spartans take down Virginia on Monday night and stand alone as national champions in what has been an unbelievable season Big Ten tournament champs, Big Ten regular season champs, smacked around Michigan three times, beat Duke. There's one more bridge left to cross. 
It's this one in Minneapolis. And I have to believe that the boys in green and white, they're going to be the ones who get it done. So, sorry to ruin it for you if you didn't want to know, but I I did warn you several times. So, uh, try to do your best to keep it to yourself. If you're going to be watching with others, don't. It's it's no fun to spoil the ending of a movie if somebody hasn't seen it. So, otherwise, in all seriousness, I know that the games are going to be a ton of fun to watch. These are four teams that, like I said, may not be the flashiest, may not be the biggest names, but certainly four teams who deserve to be here. Four coaches who have, I mean, have worked their ass off to get to this point, have all earned their spot, and I know that the games are going to be outstanding, must-see, definitely pulling for the Spartans. I think East Lansing will probably burn down whether they win or lose, so hopefully the Arson at least comes with a national championship. But uh, I know that I'll enjoy watching. I hope that you guys will too. We're going to go ahead and wrap up today's episode. As always, I appreciate those of you who took the time to listen, whether it's the whole show, one segment, 30 seconds, or just the opening song by Drake. Your support is always appreciated. If you truly enjoy, feel free to give us a share on Facebook or retweet on Twitter. Otherwise, you guys, again, I hope you enjoy the weekend. Hopefully, you got some warm weather ahead of you. Supposed to be in the high 60s in East Lansing tomorrow, so hopefully that trend is finding you wherever you are. You can get outside and enjoy some sunshine before the big games on Saturday. Once again, always appreciate you guys listening. Looking forward to doing it again next week. Have a good weekend. Stay safe out there. If you're in East Lansing, don't drive. Call an Uber. Be safe. And as always, thank you for listening to the Good Guy Podcast.